Hello everyone and welcome to The Lisa Burke Show. It's great to be back with you. It's been a few weeks now, I haven't been here, so super to be back in the studio with you all. And uh, what a week we've had. I mean, what a summer we've had. There's been no letdown in the news. There's been no letdown in the thunderstorms recently. And Sasha, so nice to be back with you in the studio. And Great all to be here again, yes. Super. We'll, we'll be chatting very, very soon indeed. And also welcoming Jean Cao, who is our guest today. And for once, the studio is not packed. So we're actually sitting down on chairs, which is a, a little unique for us. It is. It's rather nice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. A little cozy thank chair. you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, Jean, I have to thank introduce you, you. You're a consultant onologist. Onologist. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, onologist. Correct. Yeah. Do you know what onology is? I certainly don't. So I'm an ologist is someone who are specialized in wine, winemaker process from uh, uh, from the plants, really make grow in the plants and put it in the right place or in the right plots with the right conditions until the process to make wine until bottling. There's some who specialize in also in the marketed in the marketing uh, place, but. <coughs> More or less is, is the small, small explanation. We're, we're going to come back to the science <coughs> of onology because you are indeed a consultant onologist for the Independent Winemakers Professional Organization here in Luxembourg since 2018. Yeah. So I'm quite sure there's a lot of people in Luxembourg and, and in our neighbouring countries who might think they're excellent at producing wine, if not at least drinking wine. So we're going to hear uh, the science behind it and how you choose the right soil um, from literally the plant to the bottling process. But first of all, Sasha, we're going to have a look back at the, um, sometimes it's called the silly season, August, but it's not a silly season at all. It's been pretty busy. Well, that's what I, I was thinking, you know, it is called the silly season. I mean, but I was thinking, you know, a lot happens in the world and it's just because, I think, because parliaments are you know shut for the summer most politicians are on holiday um but you know there are a lot of natural disasters there are crime uh, trials that go on um, for this this august i don't know if it's unusual but it has felt like there's a there's a lot of news around um yeah it really really has and i mean this week no let up, progression. And I know on a previous episode, we forgot to talk about his wigs. We did. <laughs> and we laughed about it before. Yeah, but now, what news? Well, it's it's the most extraordinary story. Um, you know, uh, progression obviously led a coup earlier in the summer. And... Um, at, it's and it's been you know clouded in mystery because he he led this coup, which was a, a direct threat to the Kremlin. Apparently, it was exactly two months ago because apparently Putin quite likes his dates ah, okay. and anniversaries. Yes, he does, doesn't he? And uh, you know, on and a plane crashed on on Wednesday. Um, which presumably Prigozhin was on at, with, alongside nine other people from the Wagner group. And this, you know, we, we know he's the head of this, uh, or was the head of the <laughs> uh, Wagner mercenary group, a very active in Ukraine and uh, very active across Africa and the yeah. Syrian war. And um, he, you know, as, as I say, I mean, he's a much 
loathed figure in in Ukraine, uh, but was uh, a friend of Putin's until he started really criticising the Russian defence ministry and the defence minister in particular he was very critical about their you know their attitude to the war in Ukraine and and that they weren't getting arms etc anyways after the coup and suddenly we find that uh, he he's presumably dead uh, after this plane has crashed in very mysterious circumstances mm. the pentagon has said they don't believe it was a missile um, but that it could have been a bomb on board and last night we had the first comments from Putin himself. Yeah, they were also quite funny. Well, funny. Yeah, I mean, they were to the point, let's say. Well, he used, he, <laughs> he chose his words carefully. Very carefully, very he carefully. He spoke about Pugosian in the past tense and yet um, didn't didn't confirm that he was dead. Uh, he, he, That's he, quite the art form, isn't it? Is it is quite the art form. He sent his condolences to Pugosian's <laughs> family. Um, you know, it was very strange. Mm. You know, he sent his sympathy and then said he was a, 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 an interesting, um, what was it, an interesting person, but with, with, made, with, some with made some big mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean we have we have to as- assume that he's dead. I don't think he will be much missed. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of analysis of, you know, what what happens now. Will there be more mercenary groups? Um, is he really dead? I mean, there's a lot of people who think he could have faked his own death. Um, you know, mm. truth will out. Apparently, there's going to be an investigation. But let's watch this space. I know it's it's uh, it, it never ceases to be interesting. Never ceases to be interesting. interesting in such a horrific way, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I mean, the way yeah. people are just done away. You always think I can't be. You can't be shocked by anything that happens in 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 Russia anymore. But you are at, at each at the, each turn. Um, you are shocked yet again. It's the expressionless of Putin. I mean, it's acting on a completely different level. If it, I, I, it's not acting for him, actually, I don't think it's just he's so straight faced about everything. Whatever the situation, there's not much change. And I don't think it's Botox. <laughs> no, but you just can't read him, can you, at all? No. There's, there's no emotion, so you, you can't read him. I mean, I'm sure there are ana, you know, analysts, analysts. analysts, I can't say the word, uh, you know, who watch analysis, every yeah. uh, eye movement or a flicker to see, you know, at <laughs> what point he could be nerves. Yeah. I yeah. don't think you can tell anything from it at all. But that story will continue, of course. Now, another terrible disaster and one that you know we feel here on our team because of Sarah Tap who's from Hawaii we had this dreadful dreadful um you know natural disaster of deadly wildfires across Maui I know it's I mean that that's a couple of weeks ago that it yeah. started but the, the I thought I included it in this week still because the repercussions are still so active mm-hmm. and you know we know that over a, a thousand people are still missing um it's very difficult to I- identify people we know that 115 I think were are, are dead um and this the city of Lahaina has been totally totally destroyed so I think you know now President Biden went to visit actually on Monday. He was much criticised because he's taken a long time to to go. And there's been quite a slow response, I think, a slow aid response from the states. And I think people felt very abandoned and and left alone. And there's also the blame game is starting, of course. You know, the, the 
I think last week, it was the um, the chief uh, had to resign because he didn't call the um, the sirens. He yeah. he felt that uh, they the sirens normally are are sounded uh, for tsunamis or hurricanes, and that people would get the wrong ideas, and then he. Obviously, people didn't realise well how quickly these wildfires were spreading. Do you know that call is such a difficult call, isn't yeah. it? I mean, when you've got that responsibility to say, right, we need to put the sirens on now, this is happening now, um, that needs incredible decision-making. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's... I, I guess it was a tragedy, you know, whatever yeah. way. But of course, it made even worse when you hear these dreadful stories about people being trapped in cars, trying to mm. run towards the sea. You know, it was so fast and people have lost everything. So, um, yes, it, it was- I'm actually going to have Sarah Tapp uh, on my show for next week. Oh, are you? And uh, to talk about this and the repercussions, as you say, because often in news we have a story when it's happening, when it's breaking, but we don't have the follow up. And that's sometimes it's a story in a different way. And of course, the the story doesn't end for those people there, not in any way. And she was saying there's actually a housing crisis in Hawaii um, to me uh, when we had a chat. And the fact that um, despite certain figures coming out about X number of houses being destroyed, that really doesn't tell the story on the ground. They're very worried about the realtors kind of moving yeah. in, aren't they? Yeah. And and Sarah did such a good show. Yeah. I don't know if you heard it, where she played Hawaiian music and uh, and talked about her sort of friends and relations. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it does always make it more moving when when you she, know that she someone's knows the ground. from there and she yeah. knows the ground. Um, Yes, and then and now I, t- today I read there was a, there's another controversy, which is that the um, it, you know it is the worst natural disaster ever in Hawaii's history, but um, they're they're terribly worried about the sorry that that Maui is said that they're going to sue the Hawaiian Electric because they didn't turn the electricity off, and that again, well, according to the Maui. Uh, people that 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 again sparks went off from the power lines. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know whether that's true or not, but it seems that there was no plan in place for wildfires. Right. So whether they had to call certain sirens or make you know turn off the power grid, it was yeah. It, it, the art of planning before disaster. That's yes. just uh, <laughs> it's just. Very, very difficult. My goodness, I'm sure PhDs could be written on that. But um, it's a bit like, isn't it, when when there are earthquakes and then they look at the house, you know, when there are terrible structures and they look at the structure of the houses that were built. You can only sometimes fix a problem after an absolute disaster. But hopefully, well, hopefully I was going to say that terrible phrase, lessons have been learned. But in fact, our next story, which is moving to the UK about Lucy Letby. And I know it's a UK story, but I think many, many people across the world have heard about this nurse. It's another dreadful story. Absolutely dreadful story, isn't it? And as you say, at first I, I... I really only started following it when she was sentenced. I yeah, have to be and the reason honest. I was going to say is because, you know, I was saying lessons should be learned, but this has happened before and there was a huge report and they weren't learned and then this has happened. So, But yeah, for anybody who has not heard the story, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so this was a, a British nurse who has just been sentenced to killing um, babies, uh, premature, mainly premature babies, in a neonatal uh, hospital in the north of England in Chester. And... Um, you know, she she's been sentenced uh, for 
killing seven babies and attempting to murder six others. And they couldn't prove or there's a, there is a big question over many yeah. more. Um, and she did this over quite a prolonged period. It's giving me goosebumps even yes, thinking I about mean, some of the stories I read. Yes, it's it's absolutely horrendous but mm. uh, and as you say it's it's one of those crime stories that you you uh, as she's sentenced you 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 read the sentencing because a lot of it comes out yeah. at, during the sentence yeah. uh, and um and there's been a lot of uh, analysis of, of of the case as you say mm. about the hospital how come you know she they didn't discover this well they did first, the consultants did the consultants and did in the hospital i mean this terrible situation where uh, consultants you know, went to the manager of the the ward or whatever it was at the time. Um, and in the end, they, they had to apologise yes. to her and her father um, for upsetting her. Um, you know, it was terrible. She was brought back to the ward or something. Awful stories. That's quite something. And the other thing I think that's really interesting is is um, there was a huge upset at the sentence because she didn't appear in court yeah, to hear she her there. sentence. Or the impact statements of the affected parents yeah. who obviously made these very heartfelt statements. And um, that there's no law in place that you have to come to court and listen to the sentence and these impact statements. And I think there might be a change there in the law. There might be a change because of what's happened this time. Exactly. I think that would be valuable because it's it's one of those, there can be no compensation for a, a poor parent or, or a victim of a crime like this at all. But one thing is you want to be able to face that person who has destroyed so much of your life. I think so. I mean, you know, she's she's the biggest uh, female, female serial, serial killer in, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a it was the longest tri- murder trial in the UK. It went on over 10 months. And there's all sort of subsidiary stories around it um, you know, oh, she didn't look the type. But then, in fact, I was reading some reports on uh, female serial killers and apparently she is the type. And there's about a 40% chance that a female serial killer will work in healthcare. Um, and so she does fit the characteristic stereotypes of whatever. But of course, they're rarer in general. It's, it's very rare. And, yeah. and and I guess we never really know the, the motivation. I mean, that didn't seem to from what I've read, come out of the trial is what, you know, what was Why? it that made her do it? Why? Yeah. I mean, apart from, you know, some kind of weird God complex, complex. <laughs> is the only thing. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, that there, there doesn't seem to be anything in her history, yeah. which is why people say, oh, she didn't look the type yeah. uh, or, you know, that 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 would make her it's truly awful like that and then when you read how she did it with the babies in the air and certain things and and she had this kind of um fixation slightly with twins as yes well. just dreadful, oh absolutely dreadful. dreadful story yeah i'm so sorry for any listeners who haven't uh heard that story but very very important and hopefully will bring about some good changes um and well you can't have people losing trust in in something like you know when you go to hospital with very um you know premature babies i mean you're so ch- vulnerable you're so vulnerable exactly so you have to put your trust in in the nurses and doctors yeah. that are there so that's that's you know, it is very, very important that you really investigate it. Yes, as a family, and you are expecting the greatest care to be given to you. Anyway, um, well, what should we move to next? There's nothing that can truly follow that. Let's move to an animal story, just to kind of change the tone entirely. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, with no disrespect to all of those families, of course, but uh, moving to Luxembourg, uh, we have a wolf sighting. 
well, this causes a lot of excitement in Luxembourg. You know, <laughs> I mean, since we started the radio sort of 18 months ago, every, every now and again, there's a wolf sighting. But this one's different because they've captured it on video. Yeah, so, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just a sort of hazy photograph in the distance or something. This is very confirmed. clearly confirmed. And it has been confirmed by the Nature and Forest Administration. Yeah. And also they've never seen a wolf in the east of the country. So usually it's uh, up in the north. north. So, yeah. we, like, you know, it's all part of the Ardennes, you know. <laughs> Not many people go there. This is outside Echternach and Beaufort. So we don't know exactly where this video was taken, but it was very clearly a quite a white wolf. Um, so, yes, so this has caused massive excitement. Um, yeah. And I mean... Amongst a lot of people, a lot of nervousness. Um, yeah, <laughs> if know. they're going camping in any region around there or something. Yes, yes. But in fact, last night, uh, my eldest daughter was uh, taking my dog for a walk. And uh, as she was coming down, she finally met one of our resident dogs in the area, which is a Leonberger. And the first thing she said when she came home, if, for anyone who doesn't know, these are huge, huge dogs. <laughs> and she said, my God, I've just met this enormous dog. She said, I'm sure it's bigger than a wolf. And I'm thinking, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know how big wolves are in real life. I've seen them maybe in captivity, sadly. But um, but yeah, this is it. Bigger than a wolf, I think. <laughs> well, it made me laugh this morning. We were talking on the show about camping. Um, yeah, you've like, oh, got no, a very I, nice I love trip camping. <laughs> and um, Meredith said, oh, no, I hate camping. Um, ever since I went with my aunt. And um, we uh, we put all our food in one tent and we slept in the other. And the tent was attacked by bears, not, not the tent that Gosh. they were in, to eat all the food. And she said, we'd done it all right and hung our rubbish in the trees. And they took a really long time. They took all night to eat all the food and then you know make the big mess and all the rest of it. And I was like, well, OK, I've never been camping with bears. That would be... Would put me off yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, that's camping on an American scale. Yes, that's it's different, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. But at least they had the food in a different tent. At least that was a sensible thing. Yes. yes. Yeah. So watch out Luxembourg campers. Well, speaking of our wonderful uh, co-host Meredith, um, she has been at the Schubefeuer. Uh, it is the start of Schubefeuer season here in Luxembourg. For any external to Luxembourg listeners, tell us about Schubefeuer. What is Schubefeuer? So it is the biggest fair in Luxembourg. It's been going for over 680 years. Um, Seriously? I, yes, Amazing. I, and um, 680 years. It, I must make it one of the oldest fairs in oh Europe, I would gosh. imagine. And, you know, it obviously started sm- small with, <laughs> with people bringing their sheep to, oh. to the to the to to the town yeah. and so they, they do still open it with shepherds and some sheep with little ribbons on them and wow. it's called the Hemmelsmarsch have you ever listened to uh, you know the local bands when they come yeah. and raise money they always play that one tune you know the one? No. I was enjoying your rendition there. Uh, <laughs> um, and that comes from from there. And then and then it's officially open. Such a lovely history. I love that. It's nice, isn't it? And also what I, I this year looked at some photographs, and not, not obviously that old, uh, <laughs> of what it was like, you know, and uh, before. And it was on the glassy. It was very sweet. You know, there was still already a ferris wheel and black and white photos and a few um, food yeah. booths. So very similar to now. Um, must have now we have... must have always been Cremont. Oh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder, probably. 
Um, so now you have over 200, you know, booths and vendors and uh, sellers and rides, two new rides this year. Yeah. And over 2 million people are expected oh over the 20 days of the Shuba Fire. I mean, it's a huge attraction. And for, Yes, but for anybody living in the area, um, parking is an issue. Yeah. And of course, uh, I know some residents in the Limpetsburg area, the noise is an issue as well. But anyway, I can imagine. Anyway. What, what's the big issue this year is actually safety. Yes, I was uh, People that. are really worried about safety because there have been uh, quite a few accidents in amusement parks in yes. Belgium, Germany and France. Uh, this summer yeah. and uh, so they have gone out of their way to say you know we are testing and double testing all the rides yeah, <laughs> yeah you know I used to really love uh, fairground rides like this like the really fast ones the ones go upside down all of them I used to absolutely love them but I spent a weekend in Europa Park I'm not um, no advertising here but <laughs> with my younger daughter and I went on this Mercedes ride three times in a row and um, it's pretty intense and I felt like my brain was bouncing around in my head and since then I do feel ill if I go on a ride. Yeah. <laughs> I think it really knocked the stuffing out of me so badly. It's terrible, isn't it? yes. Yeah. Two more serious matters. Um, we're entering election season. We are. Yes, it's getting close. So October the 8th, so just over a, a month to the national elections in, in Luxembourg. And uh, what it means, I mean, we're, we're still in the summer break. So, yeah. uh, But, uh, you know, electioneering uh, is going to start soon. Mm. I mean, I think as soon as everyone's back from holiday, the shoe before you actually is kind of the, the end of summer. I always feel that, you know, yeah. uh, come the 23rd of August, people start trickling back. <laughs> and uh, so the um, different parties have um, shown, done their lists. Uh, I'm always amazed election lists. date is so close to the end of summer because in Luxembourg schools recommence around the 15th of September and that gap of time between 15th and 8th it's so close. I'm surprised they don't have it later. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it doesn't leave much time to do campaigning. Does Which is it? good and bad. Which Yes, I mean, compared to the US, I mean, thank thank the Lord <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that uh, we only have three weeks then of uh, campaigning yeah. at most. Um, and But what I, I the, the lists are always really interesting of the candidates of the different parties. So there were two, there are two new parties. Uh, one is called Focus and one is called Volt. Yeah. <laughs> Volt is a sort of a new party that's kind of aiming, I feel, at, at uh, expats and it's a very sort of European-based party. Yeah. Um, Focus is more of a sort of reforming party that was uh, formed last year. Mm -hmm. um, so that was interesting. The other interesting thing is that on average, there's only 43% of women candidates. Yeah. I read that and... Um, for me, I think that's actually quite good compared to other countries. I mean, I know when people said only 43 and it should yeah. be 50-50, but I actually think that's quite good compared to, a compared lot of to other countries. Yeah. But the Green Party does do a strict 50-50. Yeah, yeah. So and the other really interesting uh, part, fact is the age of some of the candidates. Isn't it? Yes. Fascinating. The 18, that you can stand as a candidate as an 18-year-old. There are three 18-year-old yeah. candidates. Unbelievable. And then uh, the other the, side. <laughs> in the Communist Party, the oldest candidate going, he's 84. And I, I think that's quite sweet. I think it's great. We're going towards the, uh, you know, the age of living to 100 plus anyway. I hope, I hope. So, um, <laughs> well, of course, this is a story that's going to continue for the weeks 
weeks to come, uh, election season. We'll try not to bore our listeners, but we will dig into it a little bit and we'll have some conversations about that. Um, we have to mention another, sorry everybody, but another, of course, we have Greek friends. Um, another, sorry, I can see that my recording has just flipped because of the trigger. Um, the Greece fires. Uh, the Greece fires are horrific this year again as as they were last year. So there's a lot of anger in Greece generally that, that you know, again, we're talking lessons that, uh, you know, it seems to be uh, that they seem to be in the same situation this year as last year. And there's a particular tragedy that happened near the Turkish border, yeah. which is that 18 um, migrants were obviously hiding out in a forest and were found dead in this shack um, because uh, they either didn't have time to run away from the fires that were spreading so fast. Uh, they wouldn't have got any uh, warnings that were sent out on people's mobiles uh, to, to evacuate. So they wouldn't have got any evacuation warnings. And these are young migrants. And, it, yeah. you know, it's it's so awful. Um, you know, uh, but Greece is really struggling with both wildfires and with this very porous, huge border with Turkey. Mm. Um, you know, they say 900 people are coming across, trying to get across every every day. Across, oh there's gosh. a river. And, um, you know, it's it's just a horrible situation on, on, yeah. on so many fronts. Yeah. And the wildfire is actually not just uh, affecting Greece, but also moving through Albania, Italy, Portugal, Tenerife and Canary Islands. Yeah. I mean, the pictures from Tenerife were absolutely yeah. horrific, weren't they? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm afraid climate change is, is happening as we see it. I mean, in the south of Europe... The, the heat waves and the wildfires are just extraordinary. Yeah, you had a lovely summer in Italy, but it was hot. It was really hot. And here, we, you know, we've got gales and, and storms in northern Europe. It's, it's, you know, it's extraordinary when you've read all this stuff come about climate change and then you see it happening now, really. Um, yeah, well, that, that's to what be part because that's yeah. a large conversation. Yeah. Um, now, uh a good news story from Pakistan. Again, very visual, very dynamic, almost film-like. Very visual. So I think everyone in Pakistan and uh, and a few people here were watching this. I don't know if you saw the cable car rescue. It was uh, extraordinary. First of all, I didn't know that children went to school in a cable car. Um, I know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, that, that what a mode of transport. Yes. <laughs> so instead of a two-hour walk, it's a four-minute cable car ride. So, um, Tarzan but, meets modern-day technology. Yes, but one of the cables snapped and these uh, poor, uh, I think it was um, eight, uh, six children and two adults, were stuck in this cable car for 14 hours. That must have been just horrendous. Terrifying as well. And when you see, I mean, they, they, this cable car goes over a ravine Oh, you don't want to. You don't want to think yeah. about it. Um, so this was all. You know, there were army helicopters, there were rescue services. You know, making zip lines, and after yeah. fourteen hours, they were all rescued. So it's it's a good news story, but I think it had everybody watching it because it was on live on television yeah. watching it, just. Uh, yeah, Amazing. on the edge of their seats. Yeah. And then it is a good news story uh, because everyone was rescued. And the next day, very sweetly, they went and picked up their school certificates oh. at the end of, end of year certificates. How so. did they get to school? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they took the two-hour walk or, the dr- yeah. or a drive. I'm not yes. sure I'd ever step foot in a cable car again after that experience. No, because you always think that, don't you? When you're in the yeah. mountains, you think, what would happen? Yeah, actually, it reminds me of when I was a child. It's completely not equivalent, but it was my childhood 
vague equivalent to the. Um, I remember we came to England one year on a coach with my mum, and I remember it was my uncle. I was with Tony, so I must have been very, very young. But the coach broke down on a bridge, and I was petrified. I remember thinking, how does the bridge stay up over the water? Because I was really, really young and it was my first kind of thought, you know, we are relying. It must have been my first kind of like engineering thought. (laughs) We are relying on somebody to have done a good job on making this thing to withstand ever crashing down in the water because I'm not sure I could swim at the age. I, I was really young, uh, but I remember I had a fear of bridge, bridges for a while after that. Yes, but, those hanging bridges, those yeah. pedestrian hanging bridges, you do have to just uh, suspend disbelief, don't you? Think? Yeah. They, they know what they're doing when they built it. <laughs> they do. Well, we'll come to our engineer in the room, um, but before we do, we have to... <laughs> I know, oh I put it down God. and I know you hate talking about well, him. everybody is though. I mean, he's talking about himself again, even with his own mugshot. Oh yes, my Mr. Trump's in the headlines all week again. Yeah. And uh, he has been arraigned um, in, in <laughs> Which in is Georgia. a fabulous word. I love this word. It's arraignment. <laughs> At least we can use this fabulous yes. word. Yeah. Yes. And, and he's, he's been charged in Georgia for trying to overturn the presidential election in Georgia in 2020. And not just Georgia. I mean, there's a whole load of things. Yes, he's but been this charged. specific <laughs> case, yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of legal cases going on. This is yeah. only one of four. I think um, it's uh, more, I think it's more six or something. Oh, anyway, I lose track. Yes. It's a lot. <laughs> and each one makes him uh, apparently more popular. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, you know, he was absolutely thrilled because, uh, yeah. you know, he's there. His mugshot is on the front page of every paper, every uh, news outlet today. And And what a mugshot it is. It's very funny. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it on T-shirts in the future or something. It's one of those kind of like, it's quite the mugshot. Well, you know, it's like he's sort of a caricature, sort of Dr. Evil or something. Yeah. I mean, uh, as are all his lawyers, I have to say, if you've looked at through all the mugshots, they will look quite... I do think about the job they must have to deal with a character like that and what they have to do. Uh, but even, you know, he, of course... I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to say the word tweeted anymore because they keep changing yes, their yes. name to X or whatever. They've X'd it. And, and then his son has also kind of re-X'd it. Or, I don't, what's the, what's yes. the verb anymore what's the to word? retweet, to re-X something? Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he's, he's up there. And uh, well, what will happen next? It doesn't seem to be changing uh, his popularity at all. Not mm. at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what's really quite. I think that's what people outside of America find very difficult to understand. That yeah. this doesn't affect people. Uh, you know, he comes out and he says, "I'm innocent." You know, this this is just election electioneering. It's nothing, and um, it it seems to work. And you know, meanwhile <laughs> you've got. Um, there was a debate this week of the Republican, you know, wannabe nominate nominees, yeah. and there were eight of them. Trump didn't go. And he managed to change the news agenda to a point where the debate was about what would you do about Trump if you get elected? It's, so, you know, even when he's not there, he's dominating the, the conversation. He is a phenomenon. And it's, yeah. it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, there is, there is a sort of a... 
well, I, do, I don't really want to think too much about it. But but we have to in a way because he yes. is managing to make us talk about him all the time. All the time. And and he is the favourite to win the Republican nomination. So if that if that is the case, you know, it will be him up for the elections next year. So it, it is a phenomenon. You have to talk about it. But yeah. yes, it, annoy, it annoys you. It, yeah. And then we've turned. <laughs> Sorry, um, I, I no, should absolutely. be impartial, but I can't be there. <laughs> I just can't be. <laughs> I, mean, I really, I, it boggles my mind. You know, so many intelligent people in America, so many intelligent Republican people also. Absolutely. Why choose him? I just don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, we're going to end with a fabulous story. But even this story had a number of controversies, actually. It's the Women's World Cup final. We know that Spain beat England, uh, but there's been a bit of furore here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's the, the World Cup has brought the you know women's football, made it really popular. I mean, 75 million people were... Sorry, no, that's what am I talking about. 75,000 people were in the stadium in Sydney. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's it was watched. I mean, it was in, a part of the conversation. Um, I think not just because uh, I'm English, that yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people I know were watching the final. I think it was a lot of general people. Yeah. people yeah. Uh, you know, they they got nicknames for the teams, the Matildas and the Lionesses, and yeah. all the rest of it. So Spain won very fairly. But the controversy is that the uh, the the main player, this uh, Jenny, her, I can't remember her also. I think her name is. Um, she was kissed on the lips by the Spanish FA chief uh, yes. at the end of the game you know for for winning and uh, he's he's now had to resign yeah yeah. um so that's very interesting because obviously that i don't know whether that was in the moment the excitement she has said she didn't feel comfortable actually uh with this happening um he probably wouldn't have done it if it was he wouldn't have done it if it was a man so again this this has caused some controversy which is is very interesting and this is the same player who found out that at the end of the game that her father had died so you know what a roller coaster um, it has been for her yeah I've heard some conversations about this the fact that her father died on the Friday and she was only told after the match um, and what some people would think about this but in the end most people are saying from the conversations I'm listening to it really would have been the mother's choice as to you know, whether to tell her daughter or not. What would you have done? What would you have wanted? Oh, it's a really difficult question. I think I would have wanted to find out afterwards because there's nothing you can do about it at that point. So I think you would want to finish playing. I mean, it's a final. This is the the absolute pinnacle of your career. Mm. Um, and then and then be told afterwards. I, th- I think that's what Thank I would Thank goodness choose. they won. Thank <laughs> goodness they won because yes. I think she would have felt that was a great honour for her father. Yes, exactly. I mean, she gave a very moving speech yeah. uh, honouring her father afterwards. Yeah. What about you? Um, well, I always like to know things. <laughs> However, I know that it would also affect how I felt and that would therefore affect... Yes. Well, obviously, I'm never going to be in the position of playing <laughs> for a national football team. <laughs> like this game though what would you have done if you were the captain of a team in the World Cup final that is a question I will never have to face for many reasons (laughs) anyway Sasha it's so great to to be back in the studio with you lovely to chat to you again and what a summer we are having so no doubt there'll be more news to follow in the weeks to come and I know you're going to stay with us for this wonderful chat we have coming up after a short break 
Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. So, Jean, lovely to have you with us here. Jean Cao, you're a consultant onologist for the Independent Winemakers Professional Organization in Luxembourg, OPVI, since 2018. And just to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, this wonderful word that I'm learning, onology is the science of winemaking. Now, by training, you are actually a chemical engineer. You focused first on organic and food chemistry at UDLA and then specialised in fermentation and distillation processes. And then uh, you moved from your homeland uh, to France, of course, a master's degree in viticulture agronomy in Montpellier, another master's in onology in Bordeaux. You're now specialising in pedology and soil analysis. You've worked all over the world, Mexico, South Africa, the US, France, in Saint-Emilion, Médoc, Pouillac, if that's correct, Chateauneuf-du-Pape and the Languedoc. So you really, uh, I mean, if anybody needs to know about wine, you're the guy. <laughs> I'm the guy. <laughs> You're the guy. So welcome, welcome. We feel very well, honored. Welcome again. Thank you very much you. for the invitation. I'm <laughs> really, really glad to be here. And yeah, absolutely. I'm. I have to. I, I have to say that I, I, I make this 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 uh, job because I love it. Because I really love it. So yeah, I'm continue. I try to to improve my my knowledge to share with my my clients, my partners. Yeah, well, let's go back to the beginning because you didn't yeah, start out in onology. No, You no. started out in chemical engineering and then moved into the food, pro- food processes. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I'm a Mexican. I'm a, a Mexican. So in Mexico, I'm from uh, Mexico City. So, I just pause there because yeah. I don't know any wines that come from Mexico. Yeah, there's a huge region. Well, I cannot say huge, but it's a, there's a big region in Mexico. It's in north of Mexico. It's in uh, Baja California. Okay, yeah. Uh, the name is Ensenada. Okay. But uh, since 34 years ago, there's a lot more region. Also, I miss one region that it was the first region in America who started to produce wine. It's uh, Coahuila, Chihuahua. It was one of the first uh, wineries, if I don't make a mistake, but no. And uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of wine, but the really boom uh, period of uh, making wine in Mexico, it has started in the early 60s, 70s. Right. And then, so how did you get into it? Actually, I was always interested about the fermentation and distillation things in the chemistry of that. So I'm come from uh, Mexico City, and it's not near to any kind of vineyards there, so any region. So uh, at that moment, when you are young, you are a lot of things to think about what you want to become or what is interesting to you. And for me, there were a lot of a lot of uh, possibilities that really make me think about what I want to do and chemistry was one of that. Well, I fully agree, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's also what I studied, so yes, I can understand. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, and in my mind, it was like always if I study chemistry, it will be everything open for for continuing my, my knowledge. So it was that path that I decided to, to make. So yeah, it, was in, it wasn't in in uh, Mexico City, it was a little bit farther in Puebla. It's about uh, two hours from uh, Mexico City. 
and there they proposed me the the, the organic uh, food chemistry that uh, in the in the in the food chemistry. So when I finished my studies, I was in the same problem. I, the wine or the fermentation thing, it was always there, and I wasn't. Like I'm not sure if I'm taking the, the the direction for the industry products, uh, industry food, or really go looking to the wine, mm -hmm. the fermentation. So I decided to go to the north of Mexico without nothing. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I call. I remember I call everyone. Hey, I can I can come to make some internship with you, and. There were not opportunities for me because they told me no. Uh, for internship, you are a little bit. Uh, you you have studies, we, and we don't have a position for for you here. At that moment, there weren't a lot of uh, wineries. There there was a really really small um, uh, world in uh, Mexico City. Well, in Mexico, in the north of Mexico. So I decided to buy a ticket plane and I go to knock the doors, and it was that. So wow. I found a um, right a really really fast. I found a position in a, a aquaculture mm -hmm. because they needed something uh, like uh, I don't know if you, they needed to to export in the to United States and they needed us, uh, to make the things with the FDA to mm -hmm. and so I I was in the position to make that job. But I was clear from the beginning. I'm not come from this. I'm come for looking a position in the in the in a winery. So that was really nice because this thing it it was opened my doors in there because everyone knew everyone uh, every every winery over there and they it was they who introduced me with the winemakers in Mexico and the things became really fast for me and if I remember the first day I was working in the morning in the um, aquaculture in the afternoon in the wine industry and from the first day I remember I say I did really good it's this my path and yeah everything started there and then you went to France which and of course then, uh, most yeah. people will understand is a great place to learn yeah, about winemaking yeah I decided to continue my studies in, in France yeah. and you've I mean, I can reel off the places that you've you've worked in in France. They're all the great wine regions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is your favorite? Oh, that's a huge, really, really difficult question to to answer. But uh, um, I I I prefer to discover different wines to taste the difference. But I don't have a really favorite wine. And what makes a great wine? Oh. Also, there's uh, for make a really good wine, you have, I think you you have to love your 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 your, your job. Why that? What I'm gonna try to explain myself. I was it's, thinking it would matter more on the variety of grapes and the soil. Yeah. There's uh, so many variables who go inside the to make a really good wine, so you have to be aware for those variables. So the first. For me, or the most important is the soil. Okay, you have to look in the potential of your soil, and then to choose how you're going to manage. How, what type of soil do you need? Uh, there's uh, so many different kind of soils, so that depends what you want to create or what you're able to have. Because if you have in a certain region like here in Luxembourg, 
you cannot pretend to have the soil that they have in Champagne. So you have to make uh, your best with the thing that you have. Well, they have Cremant. <laughs> yeah, they have Cremant, and it's really, really nice. <laughs> so uh, once you you determine the potential that you have in your soil, you start to adapt the how you're going to manage, what you're going to plant there, and how you're going to make grow the plants in the way that produce the, the wine that you expect. Uh, um, that's part of my job, actually. Um, I'm a supporter partner to always uh, go in the direction to think a little bit more about the details that every variable could be represent in the in the in the pro, in the in the wine okay in the we, we think what we have and what we going to or what we want to obtain as like a finished product so after the soil and the quality of the soil obviously the climate yeah. matters yeah absolutely that's well there's something that um, um, in french there's a word for this that it's mean it's uh, uh, terroir Okay, terroir, that means it's the soil, the water, okay, the plant and the human. How the, 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 the winemaker going to manage the, 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 the plot, okay? So that's is the, the variables that we talk about. I miss climate, that is super important. And uh, that's called terroir. So once you identify your terroir, um, the idea is to maximize the potential that you have. Okay. And what about choosing the grapes? It's uh, also a huge uh, point of um, or direction for the to make a really good wines. You have to uh, choose your right uh, grape or, or variety because you cannot plant. You can plant wherever you want, but. Uh, we cannot expect to plant here at Tempranillo and have the same profiles that you have in Spain. We cannot uh, plant uh, maybe uh, Grenache and who comes from the south of France and expect to have the same profile of, of wine. Okay, if we decide to, to plant Tempranillo, maybe it will be for other reasons. You're looking for other, other aromas, other 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 kind of wine or, or profile but you cannot expect to have the same one and it's not interesting to do that actually this is the the, the, the one of the uh, mainly points you will try to express the the the, 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 uh, the terroir from your own uh, soil that no one's have in other kind of places that's the main because the uh, the variety the, the, the variety as we said you can buy the variety the tempranillo and bring it here but you cannot buy the soil and bring it here mm -hmm. so that's uh, the, the the point that you try to make the, to express the soil and, and it's, it's also, here in luxembourg for example yeah and it's not just the the one but it's the mixing of the different flavors and the grapes and then you know part of your work then is uh, who decides on what tastes good Oh, <laughs> it's uh, by your own. Everyone decide what is your favorite taste. So all of the people that you're working with, they decide. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm a 
as I said, I'm a supporter partner. I, we try to really push our boundaries that what we conceive about the, what's a good wine, what's a good blend, what we going to do about uh, certain problems that we can find during the fermentation. So we can always try to think in, uh, about th those things. But the last the, 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 the last decision it will be take for the winemaker because the winemaker he has his own philosophy. He know or he, he know what he want to express and to put in the table with the people, with the with his clients. Uh, so it's him who decides what's a good wine. There's so many different factors. There's yeah. so many. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about your profile and I'm wondering, I know that, Sasha, you live in the Moselle region. I'm wondering what brought you to Luxembourg. I, I mean, do you think our wines are good here? Absolutely, yes. I'm saying that with the greatest of respect to Luxembourg, but it's not France. Yeah, I, I, yeah. of course. The, 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 the name of the country has some certain uh, certain... How can I say it? Uh, it's important, yeah, because there's a history to come with the, the, the wine or, or the label. But uh, I believe in Luxembourg wines. I see a lot, a lot, a huge potential here. That's, I, that's why I'm choose to be here also. And it, I, from the beginning, I realized that there were a really, really um, nice soils there will be a people who wanted to make it better everywhere. That was one of my my biggest uh, uh, aims. aims. Yeah, because if you work with the people who wants to improve every time, everything is possible. Everything, really, really, everything is possible. You can, you feel like, and uh, your own also that you go in the uh, right direction. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've had other conversations with people who talk about soil losing its quality, losing its organic structure. And so how do uh, vineyards, winemakers continue if they're growing so much year on year? How do they protect the, the nutrition in their soil? Yeah, actually, that's true. That's true. And... Um, um, we have to take care about the, the soils in Luxembourg and the Moselle area because it's uh, the only thing that remains if we want to continue to make wines. So there's, uh, I think, the 100% of wine growers uh, who are aware about uh, this subject. Uh, we take care of a lot of this. Uh, actually, we start like a year ago to analyze the branches to analyze the soil. We try to improve also the analyze with uh, the soil. We are in really, really close with the ASTA, the, lab uh, the laboratory ASTA, with the IFAUFA also to improve those anal analyze and also to, um, to um, bring the information to the wine growers, what we gonna do, what, uh, what's the right way to take care about our soils. And it's a huge, huge um, topic, actually. And with the process, from thinking about the land that you're choosing and how to develop the grape variety, 
right to the bottling stage, which is the hardest part of the process that you cannot control? You've talked about a lot of variables that you try to control and adapt, but I mean, obviously the weather you can't control. <laughs> this is uh, the, the main one okay. we cannot control. Um, we just try to follow. Actually, we cannot really control. We can, yeah, well, we can control certain certain variables. The most important thing for me that we can control it's the right date of harvest. Okay, the, the, uh, we are approaching for harvest time, maybe in two three weeks. So in this moment, my work is start to be a little bit. Uh, how can I say? Yeah, charged. Charged. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're glad to have you so, in before the harvest. Because right now, the thing that I make it's uh, just to go to the parcel again with the with the winemakers. We see the parcel. We discuss about the 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 the, the, the problems like uh, we can have this year. We see that the weather doesn't help us that much. So we taste the well. We taste the grapes. We s try to imagine the potential. This is a little bit of speculation right now, because you we we just imagine what can be the potential. But if the weather turn again and start the sunny days, oh, it's still raining, that could be changed really really fast. So, um, but the thing that doesn't change is one. We approach really. We make analyze, and we know where we'll be more or less uh, in, the, in the, the the place to pick the grapes. Uh, we have to make the right decision to pick it in the right right day or right time. But we cannot make any winemaker can harvest all their parcels in the same time. Mm. So that's. It's a problem, a managed problem, also. So we try to choose the 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 the, 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 the plots that are the biggest potential to pick it really, really exactly in the right uh, moment, and that's it's um, we consider that one for our premium wine. And actually. then after that, hopefully you've picked the right date, etc., the right grapes, the right time. Talk to us a little bit about the fermentation process. Absolutely. Well, the uh, you talk about which kind of variat uh, variables we can manage. Uh, fermentation, it's one more or less we can we can we can manage a really really good uh, fermentation. Actually, after we receive the the, the the grapes and we pass the distema machine, we crush the the, 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 the grapes. That depends if it will be white wine or will be red wine. Okay, so. Or rosé. Uh, once we start the fermentation, we're gonna take the example of uh, white wines here. So we can go directly to pressing to extract the juice. Okay, we separate the juice. Also, we have there a separation, and we try to evaluate the the quality of the juice to go to the tanks. Okay, in the tanks, we also use uh, again a second second we. Choose a, again a second quality the wines. Uh, we use um, normally we use a we let to settle down the, the the juice to the canter and then we take the best juice from the, from the tank to start the fermentation. 
Well, there is the fermentation. We can also, there's other variabilities there. <laughs> we don't miss about the variability yeah, here. Yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Exactly. Uh, that will be the temperature. Um, that will be the gist if we choose to make a spontaneous fermentation or we we prefer to pick a gist who could give a certain character of the wine. That depends also. We have to put it in, a, in the same way as the temperature. The time that we keep it in the tank also so there's uh, there's a lot i can continue to my goodness me yeah. well sasha you live on the Moselle. have you got any questions oh Jean? i've got so many <laughs> we've got we've got four minutes okay right. four minutes uh, fire away. i will try to do my best uh, okay. no so i know that people's tastes have changed haven't they so um that's what the winemakers around us i live near Anne, always say that they've uh changed the grape varieties a lot because people have got a more sophisticated palate now. Ooh. So is that something that has affected you? No, 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 no not really. I, I, actually, I think the thing it's uh, um, there's uh, they could change the the, the variabilities, the the don't know the, the the grapes variabilities, and uh, but no, doesn't affect actually. That depends for each one. Right. What uh, what they prefer, but uh, the truth is, in the Mosel here in Luxembourg, the wine it has become uh, better and better. The quality, I think, uh, if you don't know the the wine in Luxembourg and you are always like approaching to the the huge area like uh, Burgundy or Champagne. You have to give the opportunity to go and taste some wine from Luxembourg because since since and you arrived, it's got better. No, ah. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what type no, no. of wine is it's, your favourite? Yeah, I was going to ask that. <laughs> that yes, was come my, on, yeah, so that my favourite wine. Yes, yeah. here in Luxembourg. I'm about, uh, I'm more, here in Luxembourg, I'm... I fell in love with the uh, Riesling, the, with the Crema, obviously, yeah. and uh, Pinot Noir. Oh, Pinot Noir. I okay. really love, there's not a lot of Pinot Noir. Red, uh, we talk about the red wine because uh, there's, a, there's a wineries who produce also in white, mm -hmm. who calls uh, Blanc de Noir. But uh, I really love the Pinot Noir. I'm going to explain you why. Because the, the, the um, Cremant, it was since I arrived, it was always good and they continue to improve and it's a really, really nice product. Releasing is the same. Actually, they produce a super nice Riesling, but the Pinot Noir, actually, it's um, improved year after year after year. It's really impressive that how the winemakers are uh, improved the, the 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 quality of the Pinot Noir. So in really, I'm I fell in love for Pinot Noir from Luxembourg. I'm it's just really thinking, nice. uh, one of the people that we've had on the show are, is the Hotel and Tourism School of Luxembourg, and they have a great chef there. And uh, I'm thinking they need to have some of your courses, you know, at this uh, school, because it's such an increasingly important part. I mean, the whole Moselle region is a tourism area, but not just that. It's also a very important economic part of Luxembourg. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think we have to always keep open to share the knowledge that we have i'm pretty sure that i'm gonna learn a lot of uh, also from the school 
because yeah. there is always something to 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 share with. Yeah. Well, my goodness, I think we're going to have to go for a drink at some point, Sasha, with Jean. <laughs> yes. And we're going to have to sit there and listen to various explanations. We should have a team building event with you, so that you tell us about various wines and the cultivation. Yeah. Because you don't think of red wines in Luxembourg, so that no, would be. No, that's that why. Would be that's why I say. That's, that's why true. I say. And if you want to come to drink something with us, you have to go to. La Mosel, to go and to contact the private vinesers. Yeah. And uh, that LU, I think, I'm going to tell you. We will. We will we'll, we will put a little link yeah. to that. But Jean, thank you so much. Thank for you, you to having me here. And the uh, invitation and the time, it was great. And we might come back for more wine another time. <laughs> Celebrate, <laughs> yes. perhaps post-election results with Jean. <laughs> yes, <great. laughs> Sasha, well, as thank always, you. thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Mm-hmm.